Well, Johnny, you know, Bob pioneered the monologue and right. was there before everybody. And people like even you yourself have kind of, you know, modeled yourself on what he did. And I could just feel Candy and Moranis fading back. They're like, <laughs> they're like what are you nuts? Are you going to go head to head with Carson, you moron? <laughs> How are you? Good. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you, man. It's a, it's, it's a, just a complete thrill to have you on, man. And plus, like I said, I know now you're telling me there's guests that we've had on that you know that I don't even know that you know. So now I'm just curious. Well, some odd ones that you wouldn't think I know, like Steve Cropper. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Really? <clears throat> yeah. I met him when uh, Dan was doing the Blues Brothers. Oh, nice. Right. And, mm. um, Became friends with him and Duck Dunn and all the guys, you know. That's awesome. Uh, so that was pretty good. Yeah, he was um, great. He was a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah, and Richard Zoglin. Oh, nice. Zog, wow. He yeah. interviewed me for his Bob Hope book. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, no. yeah. yeah, that was a good one. And Ron James oh, was, nice. uh, played. <laughs> I did this really ridiculous show called rocket boy and ron james played my sidekick buddy i was rocket boy <laughs> and it, awesome. this is something that came out in the 80s you know uh so that's so incredible yeah he so was... i mean there's a few people you know jay kogan i know he's a writer that uh i actually uh know his father yeah. Lewis Black, of course, I know Lewis. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, so, yeah, you have a lot of people on that I know. That's awesome. I love when all the guests overlap and they know each other. And they have a fondness for each other, too. So far, we've had no conflicting parties yet, which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, people who hate each other. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a better way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we had, uh, oh, somebody said, I love Rocket Boy. There you go. Awesome. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, Ron James was a blast to talk to. He's another guy. We got we got into it pretty good with the SCTV stuff and all the comedians coming from Canada and everything. Did you? I was going to ask you about. Uh, you had mentioned uh, like Steve Cropper and all those guys, and when you were meeting them and stuff. Did you ever like want to dabble in music? Were you one of those comedians who like secretly wanted to play an instrument? Nope. I I was in a folk group. I played five string five string banjo for a while, but. Wow, that's hard. I was like, <clears throat> my brother is a, a legitimate musician. He's written like 25 albums and wow. recorded. And he, his name's Ian Thomas. He's uh, he's written songs that have been covered. Well, his uh, Santana, um, Air Supply, Bent Meddler, Chicago. You wow. know, wow. a lot of bands. Air Supply's so good. Yeah, and <clears throat> so... Um, He's had quite a career, but he's a real musician. And my mother was a church organist, so she was a oh. musician. 
but I really never got into it, you know. And I, I had a pretty good ear for voices and mimicry, and you know, so that was my music. Right. Yeah. When when Richard Zoglin was interviewing you for the Bob Hope book, because we had an interesting conversation when he was on, and he said that uh, he was trying to think of the first real comic, like the first real stand-up comic, and he thought of Bob Hope. I know other guys who would go back to this guy in vaudeville whose name escapes me now. But where do you think like the origin of stand-up started? Do you think it was like Bob Hope, that kind of form? Well, I mean, there <clears throat> there may have been stand-ups in vaudeville, <clears throat> but that's not the same as Bob who just went out off the vaudeville circuit and did his own. He was mm. really the first stand-up. Right. I remember the first time I ever met Johnny Carson. Um he we were at nbc shooting a show and um they said oh johnny wants to meet you. he's backstage doing his tea time movies you know so they walked us to his set mm -hmm. and you know i was with john candy and rick moranis and wow. so it was like johnny was thinking that we're these young gorilla comics and we think he's old fashioned and whatnot so he was taking some shots at bob because he knew about my Bob Hope impersonation. He right. was taking shots at Bob, and he was saying, oh, you know, he's like, he was on my show, you know, and he, you'd say, hey, you know, my wife just died of cancer. And he'd go, yeah, but I want to tell you, you know, and I, I, I listened to this for about a minute, and then I said, well, Johnny, you know, Bob pioneered the monologue, and right. was there before everybody and people like even you yourself have kind of, you know, modeled yourself on what he did. And I could just feel Candy and Moranis fading back. They're like, <laughs> they're like what are you nuts? Are you going to go head to head with Carson, you moron? And, and I wasn't really, you know, and I, I actually got to know him later. And I, I was a guest on his show and I had uh, lunch with him a couple of times. And it wasn't like that at all, you know, and he was a fan and I was a fan and I let mm -hmm. him know that. Yeah. Um, there was still to this day, there's no better late night talk show host than Johnny Carson. Absolutely. He, he was yeah. killer. What do you think? Do you think anybody comes close? If Jimmy Kimmel hadn't gone on his tirade against Trump and made mm. his entire show a a monologue on trump <laughs> i would have said jimmy kimmel but yeah when he crossed the line see johnny was very apolitical he 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 was like hey hey there's a place for politics watch the news folks this is a talk show we do comedy here and that kind of so I love that about him did anybody and, know his politics outside of it too or was it all a mystery to everybody I think he kept it really close to the vest. I, wow. I don't think he shared yeah. his politics with anyone. I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, close. Yeah, with family. His writers, maybe, or close friends, but mm -hmm. yeah. 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 John was, was actually, impressive. John was just what? fishing for you to say John with the uh, best talk show host is <laughs> Johnny. I'm like, anybody else you know? Anybody on the. Anybody on the internet now? Maybe a bearded guy, <laughs> a lot of hair. Anybody well, else? I'm new to your show. No, that's true. So <laughs> let me just say, so far so good. But the jury's still out. That'd be hilarious if we did a check-in every like 12 minutes. We're like, all right, Dave, where are we at now? Well, 
<laughs> a meter. You need a meter. Was, yeah, we need a meter. That last well, question was a real dud. So, uh... but it, but it's tough, you know, because um, Colbert is very political too. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they all are to an extent. Jimmy now. Fallon is just a kiss ass. <laughs> I, I don't even like watching that show, and it's, he loves everybody. You know, I mean, I liked Letterman because he was just. He was just a dick to some people. Yeah, I fucking yeah. love. I love and miss Letterman. I didn't think I was gonna. Mi- you know who I oh, like? Yeah. I like Letterman and I love Conan. Yeah, yeah, Conan. Yeah, yeah I like Conan too. I miss yeah. Conan now that he's not on anymore. It sucks. I thought you were talking about the people who are just still on. But, oh no, you know, no, no. When yeah. he did his shows, like from Jamaica and things like, they were really good. Right, they were very funny. Yeah. I used yeah. to like all that yeah. stuff. He like he really got to brand. He was uh, Conan was I think the person who took the um, talk show format the farthest away from what it was originally. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and I liked that a lot about him. He's and he always seemed very goofy, very silly, but very smart. Um, I loved and, the Daily Show, but that wasn't really a talk show. The John Stewart when he was no, on, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't a talk and show. And then John Stewart just kind of went away yeah he, he just, <laughs> yeah he retired for a bit he just there disappeared or something yeah. you know craig ferguson's um, show was really good too did you ever watch uh, that i enjoyed the wee scotchman in his act you know he's pretty, <laughs> pretty dumb dude yeah from time to time I, I the guy who did the writing and played the uh voice of the robot that was oh. on his show his name's tom straw he's a friend of mine he was a showrunner he was a um he did um oh, what was it Night Court, oh, and then a, a sitcom I was in called Grace Under Fire. He was the love fifth, Grace Under Fire too. The fifth showrunner in five years on that show. Wow, wow. yeah, that was a great show. Um, yeah, oh. she fired. What was that? I'd love to hear Dave Thomas' favorite Joe Flaherty story. Well, here's one. <laughs> <laughs> when um, when we were doing SCTV, I came into the studio one day. And they said, we got to change things around. I said, why? Joe's gone. (laughs) What do you mean he's gone? Like, we're in production. He's gone. And I said, well, where is he? We don't know. We phoned Pittsburgh. We're in shooting in Edmonton, right? That's where we (laughs) shot SCTV. We phoned Pittsburgh. We can't can't get a hold of him there. And Mm -hmm. we're looking for him. And so I went, so what are we going to do? Well, instead of his Guy Caballero thing, instead of this... We're going to do this and this, and then we, we actually, we're going to need some new stuff. Like, if he doesn't come back, we, and then we, I find out he's in Italy. Oh, wow. Joe just I... got to a point, our show really burned people out. Because yeah. it was just little sketches on sets, and it didn't, it didn't play out like Saturday Night Live, and it just burned through the carpenters that did, burned through the costume people it burned through the cast and it burned through us as writers and joe just kind of got fried and left town with right. Italy. <laughs> wow that... yeah that's my favorite joe flaherty story <laughs> and he didn't tell anybody <laughs> not even a note he's just gone nope just oh, left that's the ultimate irish goodbye and he's not even irish yeah well he is half he's half, he's I- half, is irish. He half irish okay oh yeah half irish half italian oh, all right then that all right that cuts it then that makes sense um, what was it like when you got, cause you were part, you know, you were all the original cast and stuff like that. And you did kind of have SNL for a bit to go up against. But I think, like I said it in the intro, I do think that SETV holds up in a way that is a little bit, 
it's more pure sketch comedy, I think, than SNL turned out to be towards the end. You know what I mean? Well, they were very different shows. Right. And um, I visited the SNL set when Danny Aykroyd, in the first season, was doing it. Mm-hmm. And then I did a show with Lauren Michaels called The New Show. The New Show, yeah. He did in between his two stints on Saturday Night Live. And he did The New Show exactly like Saturday Night Live. Mm. So then I got a real chance to compare it to SETV. And here's how they were different. Mm-hmm. Number one, SCT was TV, although we did a few multi-camp things, was mainly single, single camp. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't done in front of an audience and it wasn't done live. Right. And so we burned through sets and costumes and props and cast and material way faster because in a in a SCTV show, we would be only on one set for 30 seconds, then gone and off to a different set. On SNL, when the lights come up on a living room set, you know you're in that living room set until the next commercial. Right. And yeah. so there was a, a predictability and they were limited by the number of sets they could load in to Studio 8H. Hmm. The other part of it is it's done in front of an audience. And I always wondered why a lot of the SNL people were doing stuff so big and also kind of looking up. And I right. realized when I got there to do the new show that, oh, this is like circus. This is like, this is like, this is a play. This is not a, you can't do a sketch in subtle subtlety like we could do it on SCTV. Mm-hmm. You had to blast all your lines up big to the back row of the people sitting up there in those bleachers. So they were very different shows in the way they were written and shot and performed. And all those things, I think, makes it very difficult difficult to compare the two, you know? Right. Yeah. Did you have, did you, when Lauren, when you were on the new show with Lauren, you know, because he had yeah. left SNL, did you, was he fully involved in the new show or did you feel like he thought like he shouldn't have left SNL? Was it weird? No, he wasn't invested in it at all. <laughs> and I mean, I remember he lured me to do it and I left Toronto. I came down to New York and um, he got me an apartment. He was, I would say he treats you really well. Right. But he just, he deep sixed the show. I mean, wow. I remember going into his office and screaming at him that literally yelling at him saying, you know, you brought me here and you said you're going to turn this show. And, and I said, look at these fucking ratings. We are <laughs> 65 out of 70 shows this week. That's where this show is, 65th. Wow. I said, it couldn't be worse, you know? Right. And he said, you know, it's true. <laughs> I wake up these days, and instead of thinking about what great sketch I would like to do, I think about what I'd like to eat today. Wow. And, <laughs> and I burst out laughing, because and that was what he was best at disarming people right that would come in with a gripe and scream at him you know <laughs> lauren's very political and he's very smart he knows how to handle the press and he knows how to handle his players mm-hmm. and so yeah. he knew how to handle us but he had yeah. that was probably one of the best writing rooms i was ever in it was wow you know buck henry jack handy george myers who was one of the 
top writers on The Simpsons. He yeah. led all the rewrites. Um, Tom Gamble and Max Pross, um, Franken and Davis. It, it was it was wow. an amazing writing room, and great stuff came up, and we did great stuff on that show. But nobody saw it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bummer man yeah those are all great uh writers i forgot that you had worked with franken for a long time too oh yeah yeah what was it like working with him in a writer's room did you see that he would want to be a senator one day did you get that impression that oh this yeah guy... oh no, really yeah, wow. yeah yeah he and tom davis used to stop everything at six or six thirty to go and watch the news really wow they were so obsessed with the news and i couldn't understand that mm -hmm. because I'm pretty apolitical and you know, yeah. people say to me, who are you voting for? I'll go, what the fuck does it matter? I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I have honestly, I've lived in the United States since 1978. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many presidents that's been or how many have been democratic or Republican, but mm -hmm. my life has never changed one bit. Yeah. During yeah. any of these times. So it was like, so what's the difference then? I mean, America's run by corporate America. Yeah. And that's who's running the country. And the goons in Washington don't have anything to do with it. And yeah, the hot button cool. issues are still the same. Yeah, they are. Because they I know mean, that's what I they was, get. I yeah. was college editor of my college paper. Mm -hmm. And when we were short on copy or, or stuff wasn't coming in, I would say, just run that abortion piece. And we're just going to get, <laughs> we're going to get besieged with copy, you know? Yeah. And sure enough. And it's, it's so still true. A hot button, still a hot button issue. Well, I just and somebody told me the other. Like yeah, somebody told me the other day, and not to get too too deep into it or anything like that, but somebody told me the other day, and I didn't even realize this, that Roe versus Wade is still an issue because yeah. the Democrats can, if they want to, uh, make it a law, make it law. But then they'll complain and they'll be like, "Well, you know, we'd like to, but the filibuster, which is just apparently just all bullshit." But they lean on that every year. As a as a campaign point, so they're not going to make it. They're not gonna. They're not gonna do an executive order and just make it into law right away because it's what yeah. they run on and it's what the Republicans run against. So no one, it's in, it's in no one's interest to make it a law. And you got these massive companies like Google and Amazon, and, yeah. and like who knows what the hell they're doing? They're watching you know, us right now. Hey guys, you got that <laughs> that bizarre guy Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Who changed the name of his company to Meta, and it's just like, whoa! <laughs> what does he? What does he want to do? Does right. he want to take away real life completely and make everything a simulation? Is that yes. what he wants to do? Because he's a simulation. Yes, I'm pretty sure. Doesn't he, he look like that? Uh, okay, I I was looking up Meta, just googling it, and I right. I, I came across this uh, kind of a promo from Zuckerberg about mm. about. And so his avatar comes up, and then it cuts back to him. I swear to God, he's probably the only person who looks exactly <laughs> like his avatar. He, it's his so hair it's was so sculpted. True. The clothes that he was wearing in person were exactly the same as the avatar's clothes. Mm -hmm. And it was like, so whenever he posed for that avatar thing months, years ago, yeah. and he's still wearing the same clothes, you know. Yeah, he actually has enough money that every day that he changes his outfit, they make a new avatar to line up directly. That's running America, right? I mean, you know, yeah. come on. Most people don't even know what those companies are doing. 
Oh, no. No, no, no. And and they are so far above the regulators that who knows? And we'll we'll find out later. Like like him him changing his company to Meta is hilarious that everybody let him do it because it was like Facebook (laughs) in a lot of trouble. And he was like, guess we'll just fucking change the name on all the credit card receipts, you know, (laughs) and that was it. And it was done. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, oh, I guess that's that's a great loophole. I can't do that shit. I can't just be like, oh, I owe money and I'm in trouble. Better change my name to Phil. And then, you know, I don't know who but, that John guy is, but fucking. But that's yeah. why I love this country, because it's so insane. I yeah. mean, yeah, Marty Short's dad used to call the United States the excited states. <laughs> and it's a fact that 90% of everyone in Canada lives within 100 miles of the U.S. border. Uh, so I've always pictured it as like Canadians sitting on bleachers, just watching America <laughs> from their bleachers. And once in a while, they'll do something like taking this thing in Ottawa. Yeah. But mostly it's Canadians watching American madness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think the truckers thing in Ottawa is some kind of like spillover from America. Like they got some of the insanity and they yeah, it's contagious sometimes, you know. That's right. Um, yeah. There's the were you oh, somebody has a question. A question for Dave. What do you think Bill Neal would be up to? Well, you know, Bill Neal is basically me. <laughs> I couldn't use the, the name Dave Dunn, but it was like <laughs> You know, all of his pieces with him as a critic and things like that on SCTV, they were Dave Thomas rants. And Mm -hmm. I just called it Bill Needle. And I heard that name. I was in an airport and I was waiting for a plane. I heard Bill Needle, Bill Needle, please report (laughs) to the uh, whatever desk. And I thought, oh, that's a good name. And I just remember that. And then I kind of appropriated <laughs> it for the show. <sighs> but it was like I, a name, Bill Needle, just like Needle, Needle, Needle. It just seemed like a perfect name. That's hilarious. And, I wonder if the real Bill Needle and was walking around like, like, did he ever put it together that that was him? <laughs> <laughs> like, he saw, like he saw him in an airport and was like, I, I don't that know. I took my name. <laughs> son of a bitch it's like honey and she's like yeah. sure he did bill sure he did were you were you eager to get to america when you guys were all when you when you and john and everybody was doing stv was that something you wanted God, yes wow absolutely i mean you know we felt like total failures the first three years of the show i mean wow, just why? like yeah it was just like you know snl was this giant and it was just like all mm-hmm. the media and press and everything and so we were originally shooting SCTV in Toronto. And then the broadcaster, the Canadian broadcaster dropped us, global television. Mm-hmm. And CBC said they would pick it up, but they didn't have enough money to do the show. They never right. have enough money. They've been going out of business for like uh, nearly 100 years. And they're still not out of business yet. But anyway, um, <laughs> so then we moved to Edmonton. And mm-hmm. I remember Joe Flaherty just going, God. I mean, where next? Skagway? I mean, they're, <laughs> they're moving us gradually further and further away from Los Angeles and New York, you know? Wow. So we really did feel like, not just second cousins, but, you know, hillbilly non-cousins, non-relatives. Oh, wow. And we felt, uh, I remember one time we went to New York for a press conference. This mm-hmm. is something Andrew Alexander set up. John Candy was probably the most affected by this because he really wanted this thing to go you know yeah 
Yeah. And the rest of us had more of an attitude like, ah, you know, it sucks, <laughs> but at least we're doing what we love, you know? Right. Yeah. But John had this burning desire for the show to be a success. So we go to this press conference and there's two people there. One, a student <laughs> media guy and another guy from a Long Island paper called Newsday. Wow. And that was it. And it was so depressing to be flown down to New York. Yeah. Two people. Right. You know? <laughs> then when we went to Edmonton, half the cast quit. I mean, Catherine O'Hara took a year off. Right. John Candy quit. He, he signed up to do his own show called Big City Comedy. Oh, right, right. And Andrea and Eugene um, said they wanted to go to L.A. and try to uh, – it was pilot season. They wanted to audition for pilots. Mm -hmm. So um, that was when I talked Rick Moranis into joining. Uh -huh. And um, and we got Andrea and Eugene to do two weeks of shooting that we then spread out through the show. But I was head writer at the time, and I was um, trying to, like, cobble together a show in our third season and what I didn't know was that NBC's president, Brandon Tartikoff, was watching the show. Wow. And had plans for the show. Mm -hmm. And after a third season, or during the third season, he put the put SCTV on all the NBC O&Os. Prior to that, we'd only been in 47 U.S. markets. Now we were in every U.S. market where there was an NBC show. We're at wow. NBC station. Right. So it was, and then the following year, Tartikoff said, we want you to do a 90-minute version of the show, and it's going to be on Friday nights. And um, we're grooming you as a possible replacement for SNL, or we're oh. grooming you to take take over Friday nights because we don't know what Carson's going to do. Right. So we that's when, and that was the year where we got our big exposure. And, and fortunately, we did two years, three years, actually, to try to kind of find ourselves, yeah. find the show, figure out how to do it. So by the time we hit that, we were kind of in our stride. You know, we, yeah. we, within that form, we knew what we were doing and we won Emmys that year. And, and, and then all of a sudden we started to get noticed and, you know, and it was, uh, it changed everything. Once right. you get Emmys and you start to have, People Notice. asking you to be guest stars on their shows, it, 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 everything changes. Yeah. Is that when you guys started to hit it with the movies and stuff like that? Started to branch out a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, separately, the Rick Moranis and I did these two beer drinking Canadian brothers. Bob and Doug McKenzie. Yeah. So that caught on. Mm -hmm. And originally, it was only for Canada. And um, it wasn't even seen in the States. And then Tartikoff saw it when mm -hmm. he did those in the third season, the owned and operated. Yeah. He said, I want, I want you to put that in the American show. Nice. And so we did. And then they caught on in the States. And ironically, but this is also true of mm -hmm. Canada. Bob and Doug didn't really catch on in Canada until they caught on in the States. And when Canadians right. saw Americans like these characters, mm -hmm. they went, oh, yeah, so do we, eh? And so, so, but then it just <clears throat> that changed things for Rick and me in the show mm -hmm. because then all of a sudden we're on the cover of Rolling Stone as SCTV's best joke and Time Magazine, yeah. Life Magazine, and all these all this press and, and Letterman and and uh, the Tonight Show and 
so we got an album deal mm-hmm. and recorded an album and it went gold and then platinum and then and then we got my agent said you we should do a movie you got to do a movie so um we started we we're going to write rick and i were going to write a movie and mm-hmm. then the SEDV producers and Brandon Tartikoff said, no, no, you can't. Because John Candy was getting movie offers at that time. People were going to be leaving the show. Right. Tartikoff said, you have an exclusive deal with us. You cannot write a movie. So wow. Rick and I hired a writer mm-hmm. with our record royalties to yeah. write the movie. And it was, it didn't work out. It was, the, it wasn't. These were improvised characters, and they're very difficult for somebody else to just jump sure. in and write for them. So yeah. the script didn't work. And mm-hmm. But unbeknownst to me, our agents at CAA got it and sent it out, and they sent it out on Friday. By Wednesday, we had a deal at MGM. Wow. So now we got a deal for a script that we don't want to do. That's right. not <laughs> McKenzie's. And... I remember Rick said, I'm, I'm out. I'm not doing, I'm not doing this. I said, <laughs> I said, let's just rewrite the script. And he said, they bought the other script. I said, Rick, they didn't even read the other script. They bought the deal. Right. And I, I had written some movies and done some stuff in California before this. So mm-hmm. I had a little bit of experience and I knew what the hype machine was like. Sure. So um, I, I started rewriting it and I get to about page, 30 or something and rick came over and he said let me see what you got and he liked this idea of opening with the two of us trying to wreck our own movie by releasing originally it was bees and then <laughs> in the theater and stinging all up the audience <laughs> and then when we actually shot it the producer comes in and says we can't release bees in the theater the liability <laughs> will be just beyond we have to it has to be moths so it became moths, which is not as good as bees, but still. <laughs> bees but when, is the best idea. But that when, is Rick read that, when Rick read that, he laughed because it was so self-destructive and so <laughs> insane. He said, okay, let's do this. So he jumped in and we started writing it together. And <laughs> then then when we, we had to leave the show to go shoot the movie, so that was uh, the beginning of us going off and doing movies. Oh my God. That is the B thing got me so bad. I didn't know anything about that. That is hilarious. That's yeah. a, that's a brilliant idea. I just can't stop picturing it. There's this uh, guy named Del Close. Who's like this second city legend, a guy that yeah directed so many people. He said to me, um, Dave, I understand the mechanics of Bob Doug McKenzie. And he said, they're antisocial. And he mm. said, that's because, and he had worked with me on stage. He said, that's because you're antisocial. He said, they're, they're the kind of characters that will park a car at a parking meter, not just try to, not just ignore it and not put money in the meter, but try to get money out of the meter. <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed and I said, Actually, yeah, yeah, it's true. And he said, yeah, that's, so that was the big joke in Bob and Doug was that, you put a baby baby mouse in a beer bottle and then fed it till it grew and then took it into the brewery. <laughs> and I'd actually learned this because I'd been a, a copywriter at McCann Erickson mm-hmm. working on the Coca-Cola account. 
And there's these legendary stories of, and and they give it a euphemism. They call it passengers. So it's like, they don't say it's a dead rat in a fucking beer. Right. (laughs) They say it's, you have a passenger. And um, it's sort of like airlines calling two planes crashing in midair a conflict. Yeah, yeah. When people get vaporized out of existence, (laughs) it's a conflict. Or a near miss in a car, yeah. you're like near miss my fucking ass. Like that was, you know, you know what's you know what's crazy. You know what I love about comedians and that story about the bees is that what? you guys had a crazy idea and you actually had to make an executive think about it seriously and say, I don't know if you guys can release real bees. <laughs> like the fact that they, that you made these guys have to think for a second, like, could we do it? <laughs> and then I have to turn you down is just so it's so fun it's so hilarious oh my god that's I would have just been like you just have to remove all the stingers it's fine we'll be fine <laughs> just dead bees <laughs> you get like oh. an hour out of them oh my god that's hilarious um so when you I gotta go back real quick because the SCTV thing did you guys were you guys aware of each other before you got recruited to do SCTV did you see each other like in like, you know, smaller improv circuits, theaters, stuff like that? Or did you guys all meet when you came to do that show? I knew Eugene Levy and Martin Short at McMaster, the university I went to. Okay. And we did plays together there. Mm-hmm. And the first show we did was Godspell. Wow. In Toronto, which was not really my idea of what I wanted to do in showbiz, but... Mm-hmm. Um, because I was a musical guy. Marty was perfect for it because he is, he's a singer and a dancer and he's won a couple of Tonys and, yeah. you know, but uh, I'm not Broadway stuff at all. And, um, but we did that show and then there was a kind of a lull after that show where there was nothing going on. And, uh, and then Second City started up, Second City Theater in Toronto. Mm-hmm. They opened a theater and uh, Eugene, Kilda Radner, Dan Aykroyd, Joe Flaherty, Andrea Martin, gone in the first cast. Mm-hmm. And then um, there were some changes, and I got into a either the second or third cast. But I was in advertising as a copywriter at this time. Because wow. <clears throat> after Gospel, when I couldn't get a job, I just I didn't want to be a waiter who called himself an actor. So I I couldn't get any jobs. So I thought, well, I'll write up some fake ads and see if I can get a job in advertising. And I did. So. Nice. <laughs> did, as, a, as a kid, did you did you know this was your calling? Like, did you feel the pull towards entertainment? Or? You know, that's funny. I spent grammar school in Durham, North Carolina. I didn't even think about it then. Okay. And when I got, and then we went to Great Britain for a year or two. A year and a half, actually. And then we went to Canada. And so I came back to Canada for high school. Now, there were high school plays, but I didn't want to be in a high school play. I didn't want to wear a white wig and pretend to be a 60-year-old man in life with father. I wanted to be on TV. Right. And But if I told any of my friends that I wanted to be on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, they would have laughed at me. Because that was as far away from where we were in Canada as wishing you could go to Mars, you know? (laughs) It was an Elon Musk-type dream. So, (laughs) you know, I I didn't tell anyone. 
that I wanted to be in show business. It wasn't until I went to college and met Marty and Eugene and we started doing plays. There wasn't even a drama department or a TV or a film department at McMaster. Wow. It was all extracurricular stuff funded by the student union. So okay. we did some plays there, but we that was when we all started getting together and realizing, well, this is what we would really like to do. Nice. So how do we do that now? And there was no specific way in Canada, in Toronto, there was nothing on TV that we wanted to be on. And then yeah. Godspell opened and Eugene and Marty got in that. Great cast, Gilda Radner, Victor Garber, Eugene, Marty, wow. Andrea, Andrea Martin. Uh, and then Dan Aykroyd and Valerie Bromfield blew in from Ottawa and started <laughs> doing stuff around town. I remember meeting him and thinking, whoa, this is the most bizarre guy I've ever met. <laughs> he is insanely funny. And uh, I started socializing with him. And then he was in that first Second City company. And then when I got into Second City, I was working with him. And I had previously been in advertising. And we were only making 145 bucks a week at Second City. And Danny wow. was an entrepreneur then and now. Mm -hmm. I mean, his... Yeah. Crystal vodka, head. yeah, his crystal head vodka is more important to him than any movie or yeah, it's good too. I think so. Yeah, I it's agree. really good. Yeah, so uh, Dan and I started writing um, retail radio spots backstage and in the day when we were doing Second City together, and then we started writing, and then he went off to do SNL. And we continued to write. We wrote one screenplay about aliens and uh, almost got it made, and oh, then. Man. And then we wrote Spies Like Us at when he had a deal at Universal. Mm -hmm. And that almost got made, but then Dan was supposed to be in it with John Belushi, and Belushi died, and then it got shelved right. for a while. And then I got into SETV, and then I was doing it. So it was, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it, it, there was an incredible number of really talented people gathered in Toronto looking for something to do in showbiz. Wow. And there are only a couple of gigs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and like Paul Schaefer was the musical director of Godspell. And he was this incredibly funny guy with an ability to play any kind of music, you know. Yeah. And became one of our best friends. My, I'm still close friends with him today. And Danny and, you know, and Marty and Gilda started dating. And, right. you know, it was, it was a very kind of a, um, interesting and amazing group of people to be involved with you know yeah anyway. i like that you know that was one of the things that i liked about um richard talking to richard zoglin and having his book comedy at the edge when i was younger when i was i think i was like <clears throat> maybe you know four years into stand-up when that book came out but i like seeing the timeline of everybody together because you guys run into each other you don't realize who came up together and how close everybody is and, you know, the directions you all kind of went with your careers and stuff like that, unless it's in paper form, you know what I mean? Unless somebody maps yeah. it out. Um, and I like that kind of stuff a lot. Um, do you, what was the process like? Cause you guys, you know, you and Dan, you said you wrote Coneheads and Spies Like Us. What's the process from like writing <coughs> something like that and how long it takes in between to seeing it made? Did you think those projects that you had written like were gone and over with and you'd moved on? Yeah. When wow. you write a script, and rarely does it ever immediately go into production, you know? Mm. 
Like yeah. Strange Brew is a classic example of the rare. We we were writing that while we were in pre-production. We were still trying to finish the script right. while we were prepping the uh, film. And um, but spies like us didn't get made for like I don't know six years or seven years after Dan and I wrote it. Wow. And uh, you know it, it's it's very strange. And there are other things that I mean. We wrote Dan and I wrote this thing uh, about aliens. I still think it's a great movie. And what was it um, called? It was called Vilcabamba, and it was about um, the Americans took the aliens from Roswell, mm -hmm. and they didn't know what to do with them. And it, there was a Truman, an actual letter from Harry Truman that said it was harmful to the economic and political stability of the United States to even admit the existence of extraterrestrials. So in the movie, Danny and I wrote, these two guys go and investigate the fact that they captured these aliens in 47 in Roswell and then didn't know what to do. So they put them in a plane, flew them to Central America and just shoved them out of the plane with parachute. <laughs> Just like get the fuck out of the United States. Somebody else can deal with this. So they get involved with these Indians in in um, Ecuador, um, the Cara Indians, who have this sort of amazing lifespan. They live to be you know 125 years old. Mm -hmm. It's because they eat like a diet of meager diet of beans and rice. Yeah. Apparently, the key to old age is to starve yourself <laughs> and live, live a miserable existence. So these aliens are with these Cary Indians in South America and they wear the sort of bowler hats and mm -hmm. print dresses that the alien that the local Indians wear. And our guys steal an F4 jet. One of them's a former Vietnam pilot mm -hmm. and an Air Force accountant now, and the other's an in, uh, architect from San Francisco. Right. They steal an Air Force jet and they fly to South America to uh, get in touch with the aliens because they find out where they are. So this almost got made by uh, who was the director? And then Spielberg was coming out with Close Encounters, and that was it. We got, oh, we got shelved. We got shelved. What a bummer! Away. Those they, they 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 didn't have enough creativity in their head to realize those two could have existed at the same time. Nope. That's oh, that's wow. such a that's such that's a bummer, Hollywood man. though. That'll happen, you know. Yeah. TV too. If you got a if you got a television show idea and there's a show like it that's just come out, you're baked. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's irony, happened to me more than a few times. And the irony of it is, TV is so derivative mm -hmm. that. Anytime there is a hit, the first thing they do is they start to trying to do copies of them, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. absolutely. Either either something is coming out that they can't do yours and it's too similar, or they've just canceled the thing that they want more of. And you're like, what, make, make up your fucking mind. When I, years ago, uh, I remember hearing when I was pitching shows at Network, one thing you can't do is you can't sell animation in prime time. Mm -hmm. Enter the Simpsons. And all of a sudden, yeah. not yeah. only can you sell it in prime time, but it'll be on for over 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on. Yeah. There South are Park. no rules in entertainment. And right. the executives are always trying to green light shows based on a set of rules or something that like a business plan that they worked out when they got their MBAs. But it's, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. 
Have you, have you ever seen the movie, The Russians Are Coming? The Russians Are Coming? Of course. Love yeah. that movie. One of my yeah. favorites. I, I, I watch it like once a year, right? I always thought it'd be kind of funny if instead of Russians at this point, though, it were it was actual aliens that washed up on a small island and nobody believed the island. That was <laughs> yeah. my, like, I was like, what a great concept. But instead of having it be people from Earth, it's yeah. just no one want, like, I just, I, but I love that. But I like that yours, that you just talked about that one. I love the idea of aliens getting shoved out of a plane. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the America's reason to get rid of them is, fuck, that's just brilliant. And then their saucer that crashed is on this architect's land. And mm -hmm. the Air Force, they find this warehouse with an electric fence that's not working anymore. And right. This architect and, and um, jet jockey from Vietnam open it up, and there's a flying saucer in there. It's just sitting there. And there's jacks where they tried to lift it up. They couldn't lift it, mm -hmm. and they couldn't move it. So they just built a warehouse around it. And threw away the key. Oh my god! And that was to us a kind of a shorthand and fun version of what people do with conspiracy theory stuff. Yeah, they, they sideline it, and it's tinfoil hat stuff. That's what it is. It's crazy. These yep. people are crazy. Nobody wants to investigate it. Exactly. No, I know. And now look at look at this during COVID and all that other shit that was going on. They came out with, you know, the Pentagon may have an alien vehicle. We don't know. And then no one paid attention to it. Everyone was like, wait, what? What do you have? <laughs> and those Tic Tacs that you see, there's yeah. videos of fighter pilots tracking them and going, whoa, look at those yeah. things. Go, holy. Yeah. Have yeah. you ever seen one? We had we had Ed Asner on the show, and he said when he was stationed at Fort Dix, he saw he saw Fort Mammoth. Yeah. Fort Mammoth. Damn it! <laughs> it's the Jersey in me. You know what I mean? We get a little Fort Dix, New Jersey. We get a little GTL in us. You're the and Jersey that's the Devil. Of... That's who you are. You're the Jersey Devil. <laughs> Can you do a sermon real quick? Can you? You got anything for us? You know what? Actually, speaking of sermons, one of my favorite characters you played is is in one of my favorite quote-unquote horror holiday movies santa's sleigh oh you play the reverend in that movie yeah that what what that i don't know i'm sorry that was like one of my my friends and i watch that every year religiously it's the most laugh out loud ridiculous holiday movie robert it culp is. isn't it yeah, yeah it's crazy good and okay so the path to that for me mm -hmm. is not something you would expect right because my sons at that time were huge wrestling fans mm -hmm. so we go to see wrestling matches and i said to ca over my agents and i said what can you give me a gig writing for this wrestling stuff so nice. they did wow and wow. i got a job and i actually created a character for wrestling and um called berlin he <laughs> only spoke german and everyone hated him because he was a Nazi, obviously. Yeah. Everyone would hate him. Yeah. And, um, you know, you try, you try to create bad guy wrestlers. But anyway, we were going to wrestling matches, and we went backstage one time and met Goldberg. And mm. he was the nicest guy. Posed for pictures with my – he gave my son his gloves and autographed them. and wow. um, And then Goldberg said, hey, do you want to be in this movie with me? Wow. And I said, sure, yeah. sure. So I got in to Santa's sleigh mm -hmm. through wrestling. <laughs> oh, my God. That's crazy. I had no idea. The yeah. sleazy pastor. Too. Yeah, that was so that was a great role, too. I'm so she had a question before, by the way. I want to get to that one, too. Yeah, I want to pull that up. How uh, how come 
she wants to know how did you come up with the Richard Harris Harris dance, and it cracks her up every single time. Well, okay, so when he did re- recorded MacArthur Park, right, I thought that was one of the most ridiculous things I've ever, ever heard, because he's one of those actors <laughs> like Richard Burton who couldn't sing, right. He did this movie Camelot, and it's all spoken. You know, it's there's he's got this breathy English voice like this. <laughs> that's his normal talking voice. And when he sings, he sings how to handle a woman. There's a way, said a wiser man. So I'm entranced by this. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking this is just <laughs> so bad, it's great. And so when I heard MacArthur Park, I thought, oh, I gotta do this. And then Eugene Levy was doing this dance show and he needed a guest on it. I said, well, I'll come on and do MacArthur Park as Richard Harris. And I noticed that he had been going around the talk shows after Camelot and he was wearing his his Camelot costume stuff, these sh- kind of blousy shirts mm-hmm. and uh, weird colors and um, very sort of merry month of May Camelot type clothes and um so i think i i need an outfit like that and so when we're rehearsing i realized i gotta do something in the bridge here there's a long bridge mm-hmm. in macarthur park so they said yeah we can cut away and i said no 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 no, no. keep the camera on me and i'll dance i'll just <laughs> i'll dance as as richard harris and then the other thing i wanted to do as a joke was that there's a high note at the very end Someone mm-hmm. put the cake on the ring. Took so long to bake it. Do it again. Oh no! So he did not sing that. I know. I knew right. that. That was one of those things that was well known yeah, in yeah. showbiz at that time. Yeah. So I had this. Um, our post production supervisor's girlfriend, who was kind of cute, in a leather suit, sitting in a chair reading a book while I did my whole act as Richard Harris. And then when it gets to that high note. She just stops reading, gets up, leans into the mic, does the high note, and then sits back down. <laughs> and, and I then take bows as Harris. <laughs> Cut to 20 years later, something like that. I'm at the Toronto Film Festival. And somebody, people are always dragging you around. Oh, you got to meet this for you. You got to meet. So mm-hmm. he says, uh, Dave, uh, you got to meet Richard Harris. He's here. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to meet Richard Harris. <laughs> exactly a flattering in person. Anyway, they go introduce me to him. They say, Richard, yeah, he, Dave Thomas, he played you on his show, SETV. He did. You see him, MacArthur Park, it's hysterical. I mean, he does this, you know. And Harris is just standing there looking at me. <laughs> and he says, well, I, I never saw that show. And then he just starts pushing me. Like this, <laughs> but I, I heard about it. I heard that it wasn't that complimentary, and literally, I think he probably pushed me back about twenty feet. <laughs> and he was really obviously—he's an Irish rounder. He was looking to get into a fight or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. The last thing I wanted at the Toronto Film Festival is to get into a fight with Richard Harris. <laughs> so. I was apologizing, saying, look, hey, it was, you know, they say impersonation is the sincerest form of flattery and uh, any other kind of things like that that I could say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And dig myself out of it, but yeah. Yeah. So that that had a real curve to it, that 
impersonation. Just turn into a quick Woody Allen impersonation. You're like, I'm so sorry. I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let me just everything you can get out there. He's he's a he's got some really like I feel like stories if he told today would wind him in jail, would land him in jail. You know what I mean? Oh, he yeah. Like I watched some of those old clips of him on Carson talking about getting drunk and climbing up wind, women's windowsills and shit. And like, man, he was looking for a fight with you. That would have been nuts. Yeah. I met Peter O'Toole at the Oscars one year. Mm-hmm. And it was really kind of a, you know, I'm talking to other people and then I just turn around and I'm looking right in his face. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I swear to you, looking into those eyes was like staring into the gates of hell. It was <laughs> the weirdest feeling that i've ever had that was just like whoa holy moly jesus christ he was a real piece of work that guy yeah did you ever have to apologize like because you know because i don't know you've been following stand-up you know the current state of it and everything that's been going on with it and uh you know a lot of people have been apologizing either fake apology whatever did you ever have to apologize for a joke and what do you think about you know the state of things now and having to you know, go on apology tours for jokes and shit. Well, I got out of comedy because of it, because it, it first of all, became ridiculously politically correct. Right. And a lot, I have a lot of friends who are stand-ups. And mm-hmm. They yeah. had to, they had to quit the college circuit and they made a lot of money there. That was their living, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and so, um, because the audiences were booing them, Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they need to the, these slow snowflakes. They need to save place. They need you got to give them trigger warnings in your monologue, you know, so that they know to cover their ears. Well, come on. I mean, comedy historically is supposed to make people think. Right. Comedy is supposed to push the boundaries by definition. Mm-hmm. If you can't push the boundaries, yeah. then what are you doing up there? Yeah, uh, you know, it it, yeah. it becomes like really child's play yeah so i i think comedy is in the dumper right now and i mean you can look at there's a few shows that are sort of edgy like larry david and a couple other but mostly comedy's real soft and you Mm -hmm. know the sort of applause that ted lasso is getting right now is a great example like i like jason sudeikis and i think he does a great great. job of that character Yeah. yeah but the show is so sickeningly sweet and optimistic and soft that it's the old hard-boiled cynics like me just kind of go, ah, fine, I, <laughs> I don't say yeah. it. I don't want to hear about it. You know? Do you prefer a more Seinfeldian type of uh, sitcom where, where there's no hugging, no, no learning? I like Larry David and Curb because he's such a prick. You know? Right. And, and I mean, <laughs> that is really funny to me. Yeah. Because, you know, he goes over to his agent's house and he's got a new house. I forget the actress's name who plays his agent's wife, but she's great. And um, yeah, she says, "So, what do you think of the new house, Larry?" Mm-hmm. She says, "Do you want to? Do you want to go on a look? Do you want to go on a tour?" He goes, "Hmm." No, no, no. <laughs> she gets mad. She goes, "Okay, get the fuck out of here. Get yeah, the yeah, fuck yeah. out of this house." <laughs> Really I, do, I do like how Larry David in interviews will always be like, he's who I wish I was. <laughs> he's yeah. like, I'm fake 90% of the time, <clears throat> and he is the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know. I I, I kind of like that. for me to find comedy that I can laugh at. Yeah. It, I mean, look, I, I agree to an extent, too. Like, I mean, I like the hat trick that um, uh, Ted Lasso kind of pulls off because Jason Sudeikis in his movies he can be 100% snarky comedy you oh, know yeah. what I mean like biting but I do like he kind of turned that into 
like the jokes that he delivers still land. They're still very funny, but you're right. It does have a sweet element to it. It's a very feel good show. Oh yeah. And, and I think it came out during a time that people, you know, I mean, you're in COVID, everybody's fucking dying and shit. And then Ted Lasso's yeah. on and you're like, all right, that's not bad. But it, it's definitely not edgy. And no, you know, comedy has lost its edge. I, I think Jason Sudeikis is wonderful in that show. And yeah. I was kind of cynical about it. And, and then I watched it and then I thought, eh, yeah, it's, it's good. He's good. Yeah. So, it's weird. But, it's so weird, man. When I go out on the road and I do stand up, I don't see any of the, the divide, you know, I don't see any of the PC shit. I think when I'm out in the clubs, when people go to see stand up, they pretty yeah. much know like, so, but it's, but it's all online. You know, it's all the internet that makes up this, like, it's like a, a few people screaming with a megaphone, you know, and then they make it up basically that it's like that there's these issues and stuff. But when I go do stand up, everybody's fine. Everybody knows it's a joke. Everybody's happy. You oh, know, so you, you can go as far as you want then. Yeah, 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 exactly. In the clubs, I swear to God, man, in the in most I've I've done red states, I've done blue states, it makes no difference when people are going to see stand up. The only trouble I ever had was I found that Trump supporters like in Michigan, you know, and like in the weird purple areas of the country, <laughs> yeah. they'd get upset. They were the only one they're the only time I ever did political jokes where the audience felt a deep connection to their candidate where they thought you were you weren't allowed to joke around about it. And I don't mean like pedestal bullshit. I mean like you couldn't even make a joke about the guy without them freaking out. So that was the only time I thought it was a little weird. Other than that, everything's you fine. You can't make a joke about Trump. Give me a break. <laughs> I know, exactly. I'm like, Jeez, he is the a guy, joke. Right? It's, it's yeah. very hard to top comedically what he does in real life. You know I mean? Exactly. Naturally. I know. It's the old trope of a joke and a joke, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like whenever, whenever anybody was like, "Oh, are you guys gonna or comedians gonna miss Trump?" and I'm like, "It's like asking the last few dinosaurs if they're gonna miss the comet." You know what I mean? Like, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we're gonna be all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as a human, I won't. I'd but... like to see your stand. Are you? Is your stand up online? It is. I'll send you some stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, send me some links. I'd like to see it. Absolutely, man. Yeah, we'd like to. Are you? Where, you said you're in L.A. now, right? Yeah. I'm yeah. supposed to be out there in a few months and stuff. We're going to go out there to pitch some stuff. And, you know, so, yeah, I'll probably be doing well, do some you shows. Do you do stand-up when you're out here? Where do you I go? do, yeah, yeah. What, the improv or the... I do. The, I, you know what's crazy? When I was out there, I lived out there for two years. The entire time I was there, I never went to the improv. I did the Comedy Store, the Ice House, um, Flappers, and, um, oh, my God, uh, Comedy Magic. And then now two of them are not around. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 And there goes, you know half my reason for being there. But. So this time he'll be at the improv. Yeah, yeah so this time. <laughs> there you go. Um yeah, did you ever did you ever try stand up? I know you had a special uh out um doing a bunch of sketches stuff like that, but did you ever want to get up there and do stand up? I did a show for CBS called Stand Up at 40 where <clears throat> as my midlife crisis mm -hmm. instead of having an affair with a 25-year-old, I decided to try stand up. <laughs> and I had Great guests <laughs> on that show, sort of tutoring me through this. Richard mm. Belzer, Gary Shandling, uh, Bob Dolphite, and of course my friend Marty Short. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I, as part of that show, had to get up at the improv and do stand up. Nice. Now I've done hosting award shows and things like that mm -hmm. so that's like prepared jokes and that's yeah. not stand-up 
Right. But it's it's looks like stand up, you know. Right. Um, and so the first night I did my prepared shit and I got laughs pretty good, but nothing to write home about. It would need to be enhanced with mm -hmm. a laugh track for sure. Then the second night I got kind of cocky and I thought, oh, just kind of I'm winging. Yeah. Let's see if I can kind of wing it on stage. Mm -hmm. Well, I am not exaggerating when I say that not only did I not get any laughs, and by that I don't mean uh, there were no group laughs, there were no individual laughs and no pocket <laughs>, laughs. And I went after the audience because it was like, oh, you think you didn't like that? Well, you're really not going to like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and they were like looking down at their tables, not looking at me. And mm. There were guys that I knew, uh, stand-ups like Rick Overton and Jake Johansson, yeah. that were standing watching me, and I came off and they were laughing. They said, we never saw anything quite like that. We, <laughs> ever, we never saw anyone get up there and get no laughs at all. Right. And <laughs> so that was a problem for me with stand-up was temperament. If, uh, if I thought the audience was just too stupid to get the jokes, I'd go after them. Yeah, of course. You, you can't do that. No, you know? I know. Unless somehow that they, you sign a contract with them where that's that's your bet. Right. You know, yeah. Where you you are going after them. Yeah, yeah. and they, they feel like they're in on it. Yeah. I've seen Jim Jeffries go after audiences sometimes. He's but great. In, 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 you know, and I mean, I... I don't know. I I like stand up, but I, I like to watch it. But I never really was. Here's the part of it that worried me. Mm -hmm. Most of the stand ups I talked to said, "Take ten years, Dave. Ten years." Mm -hmm. And I said, "What?" Yeah. And you'll be at you know Uncle Fucker's Chuckle Hut and outside <laughs> outside Atlanta. And I played that room. And they won't pay you. Right. <laughs> you'll go there and you'll you'll end up getting in a scuffle. For your money and you won't get your money and right. i thought well i don't want to do that i'm doing pretty good yeah just doing yeah. the stuff that i'm doing you know so um i just sold shows and then and then as i told you i moved in i moved over to drama and that was the first time i ever took a staff job was a show called bones on oh, yeah, uh, Fox. I love that show. that's a and, great show uh, yeah and and i I had the best time working on that show. And it was a different kind of writing for me. It was like forensic anthropology and gumshoe detective stuff. Right. And so this book that's up here in the frame, The Many Lives of Jimmy Layton, that was mm -hmm. me after Bones and the Blacklist going, oh, maybe I'd like to write a thing like that, you know? And yeah. That's my... It's a great it's book. A, it's a quant... You read it? I, absolutely i swear to god if i if it wasn't blurry a background i'd get up and go grab it i'll you, send it to you if you can autograph it for me i'll send it to you oh god yes absolutely. Oh, thank you give me your address along with the link to your stand-up absolutely um, i i i want to write a quantum mystery yeah and uh, you know i was really i was i had the best time and this guy i wrote it with max allen collins he wrote Road to Perdition. He's a famous mystery I know. writer. He's, How'd you guys meet? Oh, SpongeBob. What? Tom, <laughs> Tom Kenny introduced us. Wow. Oh, okay. All we right. Had a, we had a mutual friend. 
And he said, David's a guy that I think he's a big fan of yours and he'd love to talk to you. And I said, okay. oh, give me his number. I'll call him. And I call him. We start talking. And then he asked me what I was doing. And I had three chapters of a pitch mm -hmm. that I tried to sell as a TV show that I was thinking of writing as a book. And he asked me if he could read it. And I sent it to him. And he said, all right, I'll help you get a book agent. I'll help you uh, get a publisher. But what I really rather do is write it with you. And wow. I said, well, that's a win-win for me since I've written zero novels <laughs> and you've written over a hundred. So, right. all right, I'm yeah. in. Wow. <laughs> that's great. Um, I gotta, I gotta tell you though, if you ever do think about getting back into stand-up, uh, Uncle Fucker's Chuckle Hut has a sister club called the Laugh Clint I could probably get you into. So just if you're curious. <laughs> I, I guess I could hook that up for you. I heard that I think from Rick Overton. Do you know him? Oh, I love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. He took me out to lunch when I got out to LA. He was very nice. Uh, did he? Yeah, he took me to this. I met him. Um, do you know Jane uh, Morris and Jeff Michalski? No. Um, they have a place called the Fanatic Salon, and they're part of that Second City crew. Like they they know Rick and all those guys. So I got to do stand up there, and then Jay Kogan. That's where I met Jay Rick. Dan Castaneda, um, uh, um, oh my God, uh, George Wentz's wife, whose name is escaping me, and I feel really bad. But anyway, they were all there doing improv, so I got to meet them, and then Rick and I wound up talking because we had some mutual friends, and he was like, "I know a great burger place, best, best place here." And he's like, "Let's go out to lunch, and I'll take you there." And I was like, "Cool." And he was just—he's been really nice ever since. Yeah, I love Rick. Hey, thank you. Um, <laughs> Thomas is great. Mr. Thomas has stories for days, enjoying it immensely. We had so we had a lot of people watching. So, oh, do you? Uh, a lot of your fan? Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Um, so let me. I ask don't you get out much, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I tested positive for COVID, so I wasn't going out before that. When you actually test positive, you can't go out at all. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty horrible. Well, what do you, I mean, how did you, when you had like the time kind of, everybody had time off during COVID and stuff. I mean, I started, you know, this, we started doing it during COVID um, yeah. because I couldn't tour and stuff. Did you find it frustrating not being able to go out or did you start to get into other areas of creativity during that time? Like what was your saving grace? I wrote this book. <laughs> I did. We wrote know, this during COVID and we wrote true, yeah. it on Zoom. Right. We, we actually never met. Wow. Oh, that I didn't know. I assumed yeah, you got at least no, we didn't meet in person. We 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 met through Tom Kenny, I told you about. Yeah, that yeah. Once, but during the writing of the book, we didn't meet or get wow. together once. It was all Zoom. And that's was that your first introduction to Zoom and stuff? Is that how you got into it? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it was pretty damn good, I gotta say. Yeah. That's a yeah. it's I mean, well, one, it's a great book, but two, I feel like everybody musicians comedians whatever it is this is like not going away no and i like and it showbiz now is all zoom yeah you do pictures, <laughs> yes, you do pictures on zoom you don't go in the office and meet them anymore no i know oh my god i know which is kind of like i like i kind of like that i kind of like being in my own room yeah you know and uh and and not having to fly out somewhere for people to go yeah we're not really looking for comedians right now but thanks for coming in it's like <laughs> Really, thank you. Thank you for coming in. Let us talk, and we'll get back to you. you know? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. no, you won't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's brutal. Um, do you? I want to go back real quick in time a little bit. Um, when you were 
working with Lauren and you were meeting those guys and stuff like that, was there ever a point where you were just like, I want to do more writing? Because you it seemed to, you seemed to be like, you know, you were the head writer of SCTV, but you did performing. Was there a point where you were like, I want to do more of this than acting, where you felt like your writing was stronger than anything else and being behind the scenes was better? Or did you really well, like performing better? Performing was fun. Yeah. And performing paid more. Mm -hmm. But yeah. writing was bread and butter. Okay. I could, I could always sell something. And right. When I first came out to LA, I <clears throat> got a job writing an adaption of a book mm -hmm. as a movie for Columbia Pictures. And then I started writing. I got on this kind of, once you write something, if it isn't a piece of shit, you will get other <laughs> writing jobs, especially back then. Right. So I got hired by a lot by this guy named Mike Metavoy that was running a company called Orion. And mm -hmm. um, and I did rewrites of movies and concept things. Most of them didn't get made. And then right. I got, I did a couple of movies for Joel Silver, who mm -hmm. became yeah. a gigantic producer after yeah. me. Not when <laughs> we were working together. But you and, get some credit there. You know, you started with him first. Yeah, but I mean, that, so I had firmly established myself as a writer. I'd started out in advertising, writing copy. So I knew how to write 30-second spots. Then mm -hmm. I got into Second City, and I knew how to write sketch. And contiguous and concurrently with sec Second City, I was doing movie scripts right so after second city i just started pitching show ideas and i'd go in when i ran out of money i'd go in and see if i could pitch something to somebody sell it yeah. and i'd yeah. like that sometimes they'd get made sometimes it wouldn't but Ooh. you always got paid to write it right was there anybody that you emulated back in the day some somebody that you looked up to when you started that you admired oh god there were a lot of writers that i admired but most of them weren't comedy writers there was a wow. guy named Dan O'Bannon that wrote uh, sci-fi. He wrote huh. um, Aliens, I think. Wow. And he wrote he wrote a bunch of sci-fis. He's a really good writer. And um, I was a fan of Danny's, but I was working with Danny's. But you can be a fan of somebody's even though you're working with them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But Aykroyd has yeah. a pretty uh, unusual mind and his ability to come up with stuff shocked me. When we started writing Spies Like Us together, mm -hmm. I, I met him at his office. It was a bungalow at Universal that he shared with Belushi. And there was a, tr a steamer trunk full of books. And he wow. said, David, we got to read every one of these books before we put pen to, pen to paper. <laughs> and, it, and it was smart. And that was, he was a very sort of research-oriented writer, you know? Wow. The speed wraps that he did on Second City Stage and SNL were all very informed. When Danny, you know, prior to Danny, when somebody played a plumber on in a comedy sketch, they played as a stupid guy. Yeah, They'd play at him to make fun of him. But when Danny played a plumber, he would play this guy with integrity, and he knew everything about the differences between copper piping and plastic piping and PCV valves, and he would just start gushing these facts and the audience would be kind of delighted with his data mm -hmm. as much as his comedy you know yeah and i thought that was pretty so when i got a chance to start working with him it was really fun you know yeah yeah 
I remember one time we were like doing this thing where guys were trying to steal a car and I was starting it and it, and I went through this cycle of and then finally and Danny looks at me he was so delighted he went the solenoid and I went the solenoid <laughs> the idea of adding that detail to the sketch delighted him and I was so happy that I could do that and make it oh possible. that's great oh, that's too good would you guys I mean have you guys ever talked about doing a reunion like a get together all of you well, we did one for Netflix that was kind of like directed by Martin Scorsese, mm -hmm. but still sitting there. Yeah. It hasn't been edited yet. I, I heard about it. I thought it was. Yeah. I was wondering why nothing ever got put out. And then I thought maybe it never got made. <clears throat> we shot tons of stuff. Wow. We spent a lot of money on that. And there was a, a stage um, show, not sketches, but interview jimmy kimmel was the host and all the cast of sctv was there and he asked us questions then they put sketches up on jump on the big screens for the audience and then we comment on them so and then we did interviews and things like that there was a point where we were going to do sketches but that sort of fell apart it was more of a scheduling thing than anything else right and um and then uh it's all that footage is sitting in Scorsese's editing room. So, you know, he's too busy know. complaining about Marvel movies to get it done. Like if he would just <laughs> get out of the press, <laughs> stop trying to de-age Bob De Niro and go edit this film. Yeah. <laughs> the technology's almost there, John. <laughs> no, seriously. I'm like, what are you waiting for? It's killing me. Um, Joe, I just want to thank you so much for coming on, man. It, it, it's been a blast. We got three more questions that we ask every guest. They're staples of the show. Okay. So uh, first, before we get our three questions, guys. Oh just, yeah, yeah. Uh, real quick, any want, any, yeah. Anybody else that shot us a question, I want to try and get them in there. Sure. The, uh, one more for the Roach. That as a fellow history buff, what is the favorite historically themed SCTV sketch you guys did? Good question. Uh, I guess it would be man who would be king of the popes. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. There we go. That's a real that, good one. That was one where we started doing impersonations on SCTV because we couldn't afford guests. So we thought, <laughs> well, we'll impersonate people. So Joe could do Peter O'Toole and I could do Richard Harris. And we taught John Candy into doing Richard Burton, even though he couldn't really do him. <laughs> and, and Joe just said to John, no, no, just do, whoa, 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 whoa. Just do a lot of that. And so John is doing that. And meanwhile, it was a kind of a battle between Joe Flaherty and I to see who could blow the other guy off the screen with their impression. So, oh my God. Was, awesome. And and Eugene was in there briefly playing Victor Spinetti, the tailor who had no lines at all, just eyebrows. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, who better, right? Oh, and uh, Catherine O'Hara was was Catherine uh, Hepburn. Oh it. yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so good. It, uh, I think that was probably my favorite historically themed sketch. Well, nice. Great. And I have yeah. one more from behind the bits. Love to hear your favorite Brett Butler story. Ooh, <laughs> that I that I can actually tell on camera. <laughs> Tell them all. Tell the ones you can't tell. I don't know. I don't know. Um, 
One of the things that happened to Brett was she lost her self-awareness. This happens to stars when they become popular. Mm-hmm. They 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 get isolated by their entourage and they're they lose touch with what made them funny. Right. I've seen it happen a lot, you know. And it'll happen with comedy performers who will all of a sudden one day look in the mirror and say, you know, hey, I don't look that bad. Maybe I could be a male lead. (laughs) No, you can't. You're homely and horrible looking. (laughs) So anyway, I'm backstage with Brett. We're about to go on. And there's a bit of a pause. They're doing stuff in production. And she turns to me and she says, she had kind of an Elvis voice. Yeah. She turns to me and she says, you know, my mama, she was a genius. And I said, no, really? (laughs) And then there's a pause and she says, turns back to me and she says, you know, my daddy, he was a genius too. (laughs) And I said, really? I said, well, Brent, if your mama was a genius and your daddy was a genius, there's a pretty good chance that you too are a genius. (laughs) And without a word of irony or anything, she looks at me and she goes, Oh, I know. <laughs> well, a lack of self-awareness there. You yeah. tell this to a comedian mm-hmm. and you don't get it. Right. So I told that joke around the set. And so it was a buzzword in a buzz phrase in the show. People were going around going, oh, I know. And everyone was laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Brett, she's the only one that didn't know the joke. Right. She was smart. She picked up on it and knew that that was a joke that she didn't get. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, but I don't know if anyone ever told her or not. But oh, man. so that's a Brett Butler story that I've never told, oh. and that is one of the nicer ones that I could have told. <laughs> things that happened with her. We'll film bonus footage with Brett Butler stuff on the after the after the show ends. <laughs> That we can slowly leak out. <laughs> oh my God. It's dystopia tonight, Dave. I gotta do. I gotta do something. <laughs> we gotta get something to be the end of it. Oh man! What you know? I gotta ask you too. Uh, I've got. I've got a, a SCTV question. One of my favorite <coughs> sketches is Roy's Food Repair. Who wrote that? That's not SCTV. That's the new show. That's the new show. Yeah, and that was George Myers. Holy shit! I always thought that was SCTV. Yeah. Ah well. There you go. I'm an idiot. Uh, our fact checkers, John. Our fact I know. checkers. I really know for like I know that I know that clip and that that sketch so well. I swear to God, I thought, wow, it's a new show. Holy shit. Yep. Well, thanks. I'm gonna edit that out to make it look like I came out on top. <laughs> <laughs> it's just gonna be me going the new show. The I new never show. forget who wrote anything. Really? Yeah. Really? I'm, I'm just. I was such a writer and so competitive with other writers, and mm-hmm. when somebody writes something that. And then that was a good sketch that I wished I'd written. And it was just kind of like, God damn it. Why didn't I think of that? You know? Yeah. yeah. So, you know what? I'll get, I'm going to go. I'm going to ask you those three questions eventually, but now I still want to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I keep telling him that it's going to, I'm like, don't worry. It's going to end. We're going to get you out of here. And then I'm like, let me okay. ask you this. Your favorite brand of jacket. No, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> the straight jacket. Quick. <laughs> that was great. That was great. Um, but like I got I have a genuine question too, because when I was a kid before I started, you know, doing any of this kind of stuff, yeah, I had the impression that, you know, writers felt like writers, comedians felt like comedians, 
And then I realized that writers feel awful most of the time. They think their stuff sucks. You know, there's a lot of, you know what I mean? There's a lot of pressure around it. But I really thought that, like, you just, if if you were writing stuff, you felt like that. I thought that those things were feelings, right? Instead of hard work. Do you remember a point where you felt you were a writer? Where you were like, <coughs> oh, my God, I get it. or Or is it always a constant struggle? Well, I have this theory about um, being funny. Mm -hmm. And it applies to writers, too. It's not a talent. It's a condition. <laughs> the people who are funny are funny because they're trying to uh, push people away, mm. <laughs> especially during adolescence. That's when you wouldn't get it. You're not a jock. You didn't get accepted or whatever. Right. And when I would be as head writer on any show or show running, when I'd be interviewing writers, if somebody came in and they were like a big, tall, handsome looking guy, I'd go, this guy's not funny. <laughs> before he even opens his mouth but if i see an overweight guy or a nerdy guy a little short nerdy guy or somebody <laughs> that looks like gilbert godfrey or something like that, i'd go come on in come on in let's talk let's talk once in a while you get tricked but basically yeah. that runs it so yeah you in know, other words, if there's a guy that looks like he smells like pee, he's hilarious. Absolutely. <laughs> You're like, that guy. You got to at least give him an audience. Right. <laughs> so, you know, to answer your question, I sort of sidestepped it with that because mm -hmm. you made me think of that at the beginning. Um, there's always a point in any script where you're going, what am I doing? Yeah. I, I don't I can't do this. I'm a fraud. Mm -hmm. They're gonna catch me. They're gonna find out now that I'm no good. Right. And then I suck. And it's gonna be everyone's gonna know it. Mm -hmm. So there's always that moment in every script and in some sketches, really. You know, once in a while I felt that sort of thing where you think somebody else is holding the pen and it almost writes itself, but usually in shorter pieces. The long form stuff is always Ah, there'll be moments of inspiration, but it's mostly just. Uh, I have a friend who mimes typing like this. Uh, uh, he's a writer, and that's so great. That's his. That uh, that's it, you know. And yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, there's there's moments where you kind of just you have to get up and walk away. Yeah, you can't you know what I mean? You yeah. can't totally do it. Yeah, that's great. All right. So now for the dystopia three, finally, ready. If you could go back in time and talk to your younger self and give yourself a piece of advice that would help you today, what would it be? Buy Apple. <laughs> Buy Apple stock. That's smart. Amazon stock. Yeah. yeah. Anything. Yeah. See, I think it would be funnier if you didn't say stock and then young, you just bought a lot of apples. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't know why, but I need these. <laughs> Just Somebody going to orchards every day. Worth a lot of money one day, and they're just rotting. <laughs> <laughs> they're just rotting. Oh, that's great. Oh God, <laughs> fucking hilarious. Old um, me is a clown. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be the ultimate practical joke on you. He buys a plot of land in the Amazon. And they're like, did it all wrong? <laughs> Doc, Doc Brown is screaming at him. Um. Yeah, okay. And the next question is, if, uh, what had to end in your life, good or bad, for you to wind up where you are today? Crap, that's very thoughtful and deep. Thank I think you. I'm much too shallow a person to be able to answer that question. <laughs> you know? It's, 
I don't I don't have a joke for it off to happen. It's the kind of thing that I should answer with a joke, you know. Um, it's it's like one of those questions, do you believe there's life after death? Right. You know, it was like, yeah. I don't know, but I'm taking a change of underwear just in case. You know, <laughs> I need a glib Bob Hope joke for something like that. Right. If you no, want, no, you that's can... too too deep for me. I can't answer. It. Oh wow, we've never had nobody. All right. If you want, you can you can go back and change your first question to uh get an answer for the second question. <laughs> By Apple, but also so you this... can do time travel on your show. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. We can do anything on this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just gonna go shake your younger self and be like, "This Keebler elf bearded looking fuck is gonna ask you a question you can't answer." <laughs> he should be making cookies in a tree, but he decided to do comedy. Um, in a tree. <laughs> all right. So then, so the next question is is the theme of the show, basically. So if this was a real dystopia, and uh, there were alien zombies, a comet heading toward Earth, climate change hits. Uh, what would be your epic death? How would you want to go out? And what weapon would you use? I would use a um, M4 carbine. Okay. With extra clips. Nice. I, would I love it. it. That was put great. Full, put the selector on fully auto fire and take out as much shit as I could before I got taken down. <laughs> <laughs> that was real specific that was great it's I amazing like, he didn't have the answer for the last question but that one he's like I know. got it well that the other one was philosophical and deep this one was just carnage and end of world that's true, true. so the lesson we've learned here is do not fuck with dave thomas because he 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 knows what's up he's got it i think you found the name for the episode do don't not fuck, fuck with dave <laughs> thomas and he will be, he will beat the shit yeah, yeah. <laughs> it'll have a collapsible stock it'll have a forward pistol grip it'll have 30 round banana shaped clips and it'll have a, a, a flash suppressor because I don't want those bastards to know where I am <laughs> I'm going to dig up Richard Harris so you can fucking start pushing him back why didn't you shove him back I didn't know you were a badass <laughs> That is great. Dude, it has been so much fun talking to you. Thank you for yeah, staying for here. as long as you did. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Pleasure. Thank guys. you so much, man. You got to come don't back. Don't forget to send me that email. I want those links to your stuff. And, Absolutely, and man. I'll send you all the links. Thank okay. you, man. Appreciate it. Forward to it. Thanks. Have a great one, dude. Bye. Okay. Dystopia tonight.